You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. This is Dr. Saba Marouf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unsung Heroes, stories to inspire here on Podcast Detroit. I am your host, Dr. Saba Marouf, and we're back with another episode, um, hopefully another inspiring episode, and I'm super excited about my um, guest today, who's also a very good friend. I've had the opportunity to meet her in person, and I'm super excited. Um, but just to recap, um, for any re- uh, new listeners and for our return listeners, um, really our purpose here is to share amazing stories and unique narratives of individuals who have been sparked by their passion to become movers, shakers, and change makers in our communities. And we truly hope that by sharing these stories of positivity, we will inspire you to live a life of purpose and action. You can find us on Facebook, where you can find uh, posts about all of our past episodes, as well as um, on our website, on the website podcastdetroit.com. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes. We're also on SoundCloud, I guess Stitcher, which I've never used, um, Google Play. Um, but we're kind of all over the place. So please subscribe. And I would um, also just really love it if you guys could please leave a review. Um, I have an idea of how many listeners we have, but um, you know, your encouragement really kind of keeps us going. So if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would be really awesome. Or even on the Facebook page, but um, iTunes would be really great so that more we can get more um, followers and listeners. Uh, and I have heard um, from other shows that it's actually, if you don't mind, if you can um, leave the review on like on not on your mobile device for some reason when you do it on a mobile device it doesn't always go through um so if you can just take a few minutes to do that we'd really appreciate it but here we are we're back in the studio with our sound engineer jess jessica hi mm-hmm. how are you today saba good how are you doing good it's finally warming up here I know. in detroit where gosh it's been a long winter it was. It was like six oh months. Yeah. It really was. I really, really cold like around Halloween. Yeah, you that's know? true. Oh my gosh, it was never ending. <laughs> I actually had a birthday party for my daughter um, and I had to postpone it because it was supposed to be the day of that ice storm that Sunday. Oh yeah. And she was like so upset. My six, Aww. she turned six. But then we had it um, this past Sunday and it was amazing because the weather was so good and we actually had like outdoor activities like um, little petting farm. So it turned mm, out perfect. That worked out even better. Yeah, nice. it was really good. So, but anyway, I'm just so happy. I can just tell everybody's just a little bit more happier now, now that the weather's mm-hmm. um, better. And actually, um, our um, guest from today for today is from Chicago, so I'm sure that she can relate to these um, weather uh, weather patterns, crazy weather patterns. Um, but welcome, Hind. Um, we are welcoming Hind Mucky, who I'm going to introduce. But hi, how are you, Hind? I'm great. Thank you. I'm so excited to be there, Saba. Oh, thank you. And actually, you're one of the people that I think I, I'm pretty sure I talked to early on when we were ta- um, thinking about um, doing the show. And, and Hind actually has her own podcast that she just started. Um, and we might be able to talk about that, too. Right, Hind? I <laughs> yeah. forgot about that. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, you're you a podcaster. You inspired me. <laughs> oh. You inspired me to do it. So thank you for that, as well as the awesome conversations that you and Calvin uh, have on Unsung Heroes. I'm actually kind of embarrassed and honored that you thought that I would, you know, be good for the the show today. Oh my gosh. No, I've been meaning to ask you for a long time, but um, no, of course, I've always um, just been a fan of your work, which we're going to talk about. 
Um, but uh, but I'm really happy and I'm really excited that you have your own show now too. It's like it's just such a cool medium. Um, you know, I think a lot of us have commutes and just when I've I found that I've been listening to podcasts when I'm like cooking or doing errands or you know just definitely driving. So um, I think we need more, um, especially you know, and we've talked about this more women of color and minorities and stuff out there too. So exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, Hind yeah. Mucky is an, just to introduce you. Um, she's for our listeners. She's an interfaith educator and activist. I would add who holds a degree in international relations from Brown University, and she develops and delivers trainings on civic integration through interfaith action, anti-racism education, and youth empowerment. And she's really traveled. Um, she does travel throughout the United States and even Western Europe, where she works with diverse communities, leading workshops for civic leaders, interfaith activists, and university students. And she was most recently a religious advisor to the Kennedy Lugar Youth. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Youth Exchange and Studies Program. She's a former fellow of the American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute and is a founder and curator of Sound Side Entrance, Side Entrance, which is a blog um, which helped to catalyze a national conversation focusing on women in the mosque. And this crowdsourced website documents women's prayer experiences in mosques around the world and actually won the best female blogger uh, Brass Crescent, which is an award that honors the best of the Muslim blogosphere. And she actually um, uh, also serves on the Islamic Society of North America's Mosque Inclusion Task Force. And she's an advisor to the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding Project entitled Reimagining Muslim Spaces. And that's where I first met Hind was um, when she was speaking at an ISPU event. And we've talked about ISPU on the show before. We actually had one of the founders on last week, Saeed Khan. Um, and that's kind of when we met. And um, I've just always really loved your work and um, how expressive and articulate you are and just really um, putting a voice and capturing, you know, just illustrating kind of um, so many facets of kind of the Muslim community and the state of like our mosques, the evolution of our mosques over, um, you know, the past few decades. So thank you so much for being here, Hind. Well, thank you again for the invitation. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, I talked a little bit, you know, in your, from your bio, but just really kind of um, your story and your background and, you know, what elements from your background um, and how you were raised and brought up uh, kind of influenced you, how you started this work as an interfaith activist, and really kind of what Mm -hmm. that term also means to you, too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So actually, uh, I was born in Michigan. (laughs) So I'm a Michigander born, but raised uh, outside of Chicago. My parents, uh, my dad was at MSU, so I was born in Lansing. Um, And we still have a ton of family and friends who are out there and uh, normally, I do go to Michigan fairly frequently, although the last couple of years I haven't, but I definitely think of it as my, my home state. Um, but uh, I was raised outside of Chicago. My parents immigrated, uh, well, they immigrated from Sudan to the United States, and then they migrated from Michigan to Illinois when I was a kid. And um, I think, you know, that that move and you know often when I think about okay why do I do what I do why did I study what I studied when I was in college why am I um, you know doing work around interfaith and anti-racism you know for a lot of people for a lot of Muslims that starts on you know September 12 2001 mm-hmm. but I think for me I've always been aware that being uh, a Muslim woman um, or a female 
being uh, a person of color who identifies as black, being a child of immigrants, um, I was always aware that uh, people expected me to um, people people expected me to sort of be the ambassador, be a cultural mm-hmm. ambassador or a translator for the different identities that I was coming from. And um, over the years, I kind of I've started to think of it as a burden, but then I started to think of it, okay, well, you know, if I am not the person who's talking about what it means to be Muslim, um, you know, who else is out there who's going to overlay, uh, you know, their biases about my faith, um, you know, onto me. So I might as well do that. And I started to think of it more as uh, an opportunity Um, and not just an opportunity to, to teach other people about what it means to be, um, you know, a Muslim, but also an opportunity for me to learn about what it means to, uh, you know, build relationships, like really, really just strong and intimate relationships with people who are different from me in a country that is uh, multicultural, multi-faith, and diverse in every single way. So I actually, I think I can even um, kind of drill down the first time I felt like I was an interface ambassador, even if I wouldn't have used those words, um, was when I was a kid. And um, one of the TV shows or one of the TV channels was replaying um, Not Without My Daughter. You know, mm-hmm. that, old, that, yeah. that old stand your standby uh, Islamophobic movie. Yeah. <laughs> but it was actually based on a true story. So I'm, I'm not taking away the experiences of, of the author. But the, the way Muslim women were portrayed um, and the way Muslim men were portrayed and, and gender re- relations were portrayed in general in that TV show were actually affected me as, you know, this was, we're talking about like the late 80s and a lot of, you know, the white kids in my school watched the show or watched part of the show, watched part of the movie and would ask me like, really, I don't know whether they, I don't know whether they were like serious about those questions or they were taunting, you know, they figured out, okay, here's a way to make fun of this girl. And they would ask me things like, oh, how many wives does your dad have? You know, and mm. I'm thinking, like, what does this have to do with anything? Like, you've seen my parents, like, we're the, a handful of black people in the school, so you know which ones are my parents. You know, they're the African immigrants as opposed to the, you know, African-American parents that were there, the handful um, of parents of the other students who were black. And, you know, I felt like I had to not only in some way defend my family, but also explain, you know, okay, that's a story that was happening out of Iran, and my family's from Sudan, and Muslims are all over the world, and, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to talk to them a little bit about what it means to be Muslim. And I think I really sort of draw down, you know, kind of where I began to think of the fact that I, it actually is a responsibility and it's kind of, you know, it's not fair. I don't think to like place that responsibility on a 10, mm-hmm. you know, 11 year old kid, but that's, that's what it is. You know, it is a responsibility in some ways to, to share who you are and to share a bit of the truth of who you are. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, I would say that was the first time I became aware of like me needing to, or feeling responsible and feeling like I have to explain and teach and share about who I am mm-hmm. um, with people. And then 
as I grew older, uh, I was a teenager in, in the 90s, and that was when um, the genocide in Bosnia was happening, uh, as well as some other humanitarian disasters in another genocide in Rwanda, humanitarian disasters, other places. And that's when I started to really kind of, you know, come into the realization that we um, we also have responsibilities. We, you know, the world in many places, in many ways, is a broken place. And um, especially in the 90s, with the fall of the Soviet Union, there was all these academic theories that people from different faith backgrounds and racial backgrounds inherently could not get along together. And that was not my experience. Like when I would do some um, advocacy, even as a young teenager, I I did some advocacy around uh, the genocide in, in Bosnia. And I would be in rooms, um, okay, I would be the youngest person in the room, but I would be in rooms, you know, with with white Jewish people, with African-American Christians, with Muslims of all backgrounds, and I, all of these people cared about human rights, and they all cared about stopping the genocide, and so my experiences taught me that, you know, that clash of civilizations uh, theory is just incorrect. It was ju- it just flew against everything mm. um, that I had experienced, and so I think all of these, uh, you know, all of that background um, kind of led to my thinking. Okay, um, America is a diverse country. I'm somebody who holds um, intersecting identities, or I'm at the sort of intersection of a lot of these identities. I feel a responsibility to speak out for myself and for other people. Um, who might feel like, you know, um, their voices are, are being um, silenced because of the, the the normative kind of conversation around what it means to be a Muslim. And also just as a human being, you know, with a moral compass <laughs> that I have, you know, a duty to try to stop injustice wherever I see it. Um, and so tangibly and concretely that led me to being an interfaith activist uh, uh, as, as a career in, in many ways. Um, and that, that did actually start after 9-11, where I worked uh, here in Chicago or, uh, in coalitions with other faith communities um, on issues, uh, specifically three issues, uh, immigration, so, um, you know, comprehensive immigration reform on um uh, getting young people to be on their parents' house care and also on housing. And again, those were like multi-faith coalitions. There were people who were driven by their, by their faith to, um, you know, to work together and to try to make life a better uh, situation for people who were living without a lot of the privileges many of us take for granted. Wow, so interesting. I mean, uh, as, as you're, you know, talking about your story, just, you know, we grew up the same time. Uh, I think we're about the same age. And so mm-hmm. many of the events that you're talking about definitely um, touch a chord. Um, and it is interesting because, uh, and actually one of the themes that we've noticed on this show that Calvin has really noticed too is um, how many guests um, that we've had that um, that are Muslim that talk about how 9-11 was really a turning point. But I think that that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I and I echo that too, that, you know, pre-9-11 wasn't always easy uh, either. And we just were kind of like no, unknown. Yeah. And we, and I totally can relate to that, that um, now looking back, like, wow, I had to answer a lot of questions, either from yeah. my peers, <laughs> or even teachers would kind of put you on the spot and ask you to explain. And I didn't really realize until now looking back as an adult that that's a lot to be on, you know, a lot to have on the shoulders of, 
you know, a middle schooler or a high schooler. Um, yeah. Right. So yeah, even the first Gulf War, you know, mm-hmm. happened when I was in elementary school and like my teachers would ask me how I felt about it. And, you know, they never asked me how I felt about the Berlin Wall falling, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. like, you know, Germany and Iraq are as removed from me, you know, mm-hmm. and to each other. Like, I'm not from either of those countries. And I don't know why you would think that I would have a, a particular, you know, point of view on one or the other. Hmm. As, as like a 10 year old. Yeah, know? exactly. So yeah. what are um, some aspects of your work that really invigorate you and, you know, kind of ignites this passion? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I, I kind of alluded to, I got really excited. So when I was in college, I did do some interfaith work and it was really, I mean, I think it was important and informative for me because um I didn't mention this earlier, but I did actually attend an Islamic high school. And so although I went to public uh, elementary and junior high, my high school formational period was with other Muslims and it was all girls school. But, you know, um, you know, but it was a Muslim high school. And then so when I went to college, you know, it was the first time as a sort of a young adult that I re-engaged with people, you know, as friends and, as, uh, you know, people at, uh, in my classes or in my, my jobs that I did in school uh, who are in, of different faiths from me, right? And so I was interested academically of like, okay, what are the differences? What are the similarities between Islam and other faiths? And even within Islam itself, it's a very diverse religion, which I was um, beginning to learn about when I was in college. And, um, and that was really important and helpful for me. But what changed for me after, you know, I started, uh, after I graduated and started to work in the field was this idea that uh, people of faith and also people who, you know, don't follow a particular uh, organized religion do have shared values, right? And often these are around what we might consider like human rights, uh, you know, kind of values, like everyone has the right to have access to clean water, for example, right? And what really excites me about my work is being able to identify these issues and working with people from vastly different backgrounds, um, faith inspirations and experiences and saying, well, we all care about this one issue or we care about, you know, all of these issues. And every single time that I work um, across faith lines with people, I learn something new, not just academically about their faith tradition, but I also learn about my faith tradition and how I engage, how I personally engage with my faith tradition. And so that, that's like a, that's like a personal motivation for me to, to be able to see not only the similarities, but to also learn from the differences. And um, for me, it's motivating. And I think it's also interesting to look at that larger picture. Again, America is often, you know, described and historically has been, since at least the establishment of, you know, um, uh, when when Europeans came here, as a as a Christian country, but it's always been a religiously diverse country, and that religious diversity has always, uh, I think, added to the 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 growth and the vibrancy of the country, and it also led to, um, you know organized movements to improve human rights for, for others. And so that stuff, it might be like from a, a 10,000, you know, foot view, but it, but it really motivates me on a personal level. Like when I put my forehead to the ground and pray. 
So I link all of that together. Wow, beautiful. Um, how has your work changed over the past few years or, um, you know, since mm-hmm. the presidential campaign and the election of 2016? Or how has that kind of um, <laughs> motivated you more? Or has it become more challenging? Or have you, you know, has it kind of, you know, reignited the passion and need for this kind of yeah. work? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good question. I mean, and, you know, you've mentioned that you've had ISPU um, guests on in the past, and you know, we know through studies that, you know, every time there's an election in the U.S., even if it's a midterm election, Islamophobia spikes up, whether it's Islamophobic or anti-Muslim um, bigotry uh, in terms of rhetoric by politicians or in terms of actions by, um, you know, either organized hate groups or kind of individuals who are egged on to, to attack Muslims in, in their vicinity or people who are mistaken for Muslims. So that's been going on really throughout the 2000s, um, and it spiked, really radically spiked uh, during the first election of uh, Barack Obama during the campaign um, when some of his opponents used, you know, oh, he's a radical Muslim as a slur because they couldn't say the N-word and, uh, you know, point out the fact that he's black. So they tried to point out, say that he is Muslim because his father, uh, who, as far as I know, was not a practicing Muslim, but was was born into a Muslim family. But all of that, as toxic as that was, um, all of that kind of paled in comparison to the um, the campaign of the current president. And I think, you know, you know, from even at the outset where he begins his his campaigning against uh, Mexicans, right? He starts out saying, "Oh, Mexicans are rapists." And then, you know, the next group that he, he began, he, that he targeted was Muslims. And he said, you know, that he campaigned on, after building a wall, um, on, you know, a complete and total shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And so that's when he said that. When I, at first when I heard it, I thought, oh, somebody's exaggerating. He couldn't have really said that. Mm-hmm. And then I saw a transcript and then I saw him on the news saying it. I just thought, okay, this is different. This is really different because, you know, it reminded me of like the Asian Exclusion Act, you know, in the 20th and the early 20th, um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, where Asians were barred from, from entering the United States. And, you know, of course, um, Japanese American citizens were stripped of their citizenship during World War II. And I just, like, I genuinely felt scared for the first time. And I live in a pretty red area. Like, I mean, it can be sometimes purple <laughs> politically, but it's a fairly red area of, you know, suburb of Chicago. And I never felt scared. I never felt scared to cross the street to go to Costco or something. But during the election, I felt, uh, or during the campaign, I, I physically felt like, okay, my, my safety might be um, compromised because I wear a headscarf and, you know, I'm dark-skinned. And so very clearly identified as a Muslim. And I would say in terms of my interfaith work, my perspective hasn't shifted on that. Like I've always had an intersectional perspective about interfaith work. I always think of it, uh, you know, I think that interfaith cooperation in the United States cannot occur if we do not also include the axes of race, class, and power uh, and, and um, you know, kind of economic justice into the mix as well. 
uh, and really kind of diving deep into, you know, white supremacy and the history of the United States, specifically the anti-black history of the United States. And that hasn't changed. But what has changed, I think, is that um, a lot of people who might describe themselves as allies, uh, you know, are you know, kind of, I think the shift has been, you know, less about, okay, tell us about your faith, tell us about, you know, the tenets of your belief systems, and let's talk about what, how we're different and how we're similar. That has shifted onto, let's do some political organizing, right? Like people's rights mm-hmm. are being uh, violated. Um, people are being separated from their families, deported uh, across religious and racial lines, you know, the Muslim ban, when it was implemented, there was chaos in the airports for 72 hours. Now I'm from Chicago and, you know, I can tell you that the headlines dominated as people swarming um, O'Hare, you know, it's freezing here too as well, you know, in January and people were just out there swarming um, the, the international terminal because the conversation ceased to be, I think the interface conversation ceased to be about, um, you know, religious tenets and beliefs and what are the, our values and what do we have in common? And it shifted onto what does it really mean to be an American and who is an American? Are dreamers American? Are people who are green card holders American? If you were born in a particular country and have lived, you know, all your adult life in, a, in this country and have paid taxes and raised your kids here, are you an American? And I think that, um, most Americans came to a resounding answer, and that is, yes, you are Americans, and we're going to, uh, you know, do our best through the legal system to make sure that you stay and that families are not being broken apart. Um, and, and we see that now. I mean, the Supreme Court hearing, um, you know, uh, the appeal for, for, the, for Trump's Muslim ban that was just happening this week. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the struggle continues. But it, but it has shifted, I think. Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, that's kind of what um, I totally agree with you. That's kind of what helped even with this. I mean, I've just with this idea of this podcast, but just I mean, I've just been seeing so many more conversations and so many people, uh, minorities, women of color, people of color that are really working together, as you mentioned, with coalitions and with other organizations branching out. And even now, I mean, we're seeing so much civic engagement, people that would have never thought of running for office that are running. Um, and we've had a few of those mm-hmm. as guests, too. It's really been amazing to see. So that's some of kind of the silver lining. But yeah, it's just some interesting times, aren't they? But we're, I think we are yeah. all kind of growing um, through these times. So you know, we talked a little bit about kind of externally. What about internally? Um, when you look, kind of examine the Muslim community and where we can do better, mm-hmm. where are some of the disparities um, or inequities, um, and kind of how that led to how you you know started the web blog and now I guess website uh, side entrance. And mm-hmm. what changes and impact have you seen as a result of your work um, with the side entrance and what that what it's about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's another thing too. I mean, the Muslim. American communities, um, and I definitely use plural because we're not one community, are existing, um, you know, are are existing even as uh, anti-Muslim bigotry puts our communities in the spotlight. And as, you know, as we exist, we're growing, we're changing, you know, there's all these different factors um, that make up our communities. 
And we're not, you know, kind of in stasis, you know, just thinking about anti-Muslim bigotry of the current president and, and dealing with that. And there's all these other issues that are affecting our, our different communities. And that was one thing, um, you know, I, you know, I've always felt like I had a strong foundation uh, and a foundational understanding of my faith. I think partly because of um, you know, the fact that I attended an Islamic school. My parents are really well educated in terms of Islamic studies. And I grew up in a really tight knit Muslim community where the mosque was really the center of of um, our community. And so I felt like I knew the faith. Uh, and at least I, you know, there are things that, there are things that I struggle with. Obviously, I think every believer struggles with their faith. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, you're just kind of blindly, you know, following rituals or something. But if, if you're thinking about what it means, you're struggling with it. But I still felt like I had a handle on, on this faith. When I started to work with young people, whether they were high school or college age students, I noticed that a lot of um, a lot of the young Muslim students I engaged with felt like they didn't have a handle on, on understanding kind of the foundations of their faith. Some of them did, but a lot of them didn't. And they, you know, they, this was a generation that was raised, you know, under Bush saying you're either with us or against us. You know, these are the people who are today saying, hey, I'm going to be unapologetic, unapologetically myself uh, as a Muslim or as a person of color or what have you. But there was a sort of hesitancy, like, where do I fit into this, you know, 14 centuries of our tradition? And one of the biggest, um, you know, uh, one of the biggest challenges, I think, was alienation. Young people, young Muslim people in America often feel very alienated from their organized faith communities. And I, you know, upon working with people, you know, on the field, as well as some of my own research, as well as working with other, like, you know, other researchers through ISPU or ISNA, you know, I kind of thought, you know, there are like four broad buckets um, and that really lead to alienation of young Muslims from their organized communities. And, um, and they're really racism, sexism, classism, and sectarianism. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not superwoman. I'm not going to be able to tackle all of them. But there were a couple that I felt like I really could maybe uh, move, uh, you know, work with others to move the, the needle on. And one of the most important ones to me personally was women in the mosque, women and girls' experiences in the mosque. Um, you know, most mosques in the U.S. Uh, are gender segregated in terms of where women and men pray, and also some other mosques, you know, where women and men, um, you know, have other, you know, lectures or other community events, they, they tend to be gender segregated. And um, by not, you know, not all of them, but, but most, the majority. And what that often leads to is particularly young women feeling alienated from their communities and feeling like the religion is not their religion. And for me, as somebody who, you know, my high school that I attended was actually in the mosque. Now they have a building, they have their own building with a swimming pool and all sorts of luxuries that I didn't have. But we were there in the mosque, and that actually did something for me, that you hear the call to prayer, sometimes interrupting your class. You're there if there's a funeral, and so you participate in the funeral prayers, and, and you, you know, offer 
condolences to the people who've who've lost loved ones. And then oftentimes we sit and we stay and listen to the the lecture after the funeral, or or we're there if there's like a wedding, you know, or some some other joyous occasion. We're there all the time in the mosque. And um, I mentioned that it was an all-girls school. And so I don't think any girl in my school felt like the mosque was not her second home. Like there was never this uh, this belief that I don't belong in the mosque because I'm a girl, right? And actually, to the contrary, we're in the mosque learning about glorious women in Islamic history, you know, whether it's Khadija, the wife of the prophet, uh, the first person to accept Islam and to comfort him and, and to protect him and, and give him all of her support financially, emotionally. Um, or it was Amelia Earhart, you know, an American hero, or Harriet Tubman, another American hero. I learned about these women and more in the mosque. And so it really, um, it really just hurt my soul when I would meet, especially younger girls, especially like, you know, young women in high school or college, but also women my age or older who feel, um, you know, that their experiences led them to believe that the mosque is not their home, whether they were kicked out or just the, the hostility, the open hostility or the implicit hostility to women in the mosque. And so that really led me to think, to, to say, all right, this is not the prophetic model and in America at this time, when anti-Muslim bigotry is so rampant, uh, Muslim women in particular, and you know, Islamophobia is gendered. It does play out in a gendered way in the U.S., where Muslim women need, um, I think, to be in, an, in in a space where they feel safe, whether sometimes it's physical safe. Like, if you're being attacked because you're wearing a headscarf, um, and there's a mosque that's down the street. I wouldn't necessarily assume that that mosque would even let you in <laughs> to protect yourself if you're a woman, right? Mm. And so, so that kind of, you know, that conversation led to, um, you know, that internal conversation that I've always had with my friends led to um, this larger uh, project that I started uh, from, you know, from, from the Tumblr website side entrance where I asked women and girls to share their pictures and their stories of their experiences in mosques around first, first it started around the country, but then it became global really. Um, and out to, you know, the work that I do today, um, working with mosques on how they can become more welcoming and inclusive and empowering of not only women, but anyone who feels marginalized in their congregation. So that's, I'm sorry, that was like a really long answer to, to your question, but. Wow. No, well, I mean, that's I amazing. A lot. Well, I mean, it shows kind of um, the whole development and thought and process, and it's such a nuanced question and discussion. Um, it's really interesting. So what have you have you seen, what do you think the impact of documenting these stories has been? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I, I started the website in 2012, and I'm, by far, I'm not the first person to have this conversation around um, where women pray in mosques and are women even welcome in mosques and whether women should be allowed to run for president and other positions on the on the mosque uh, board? I'm not the first person to to um, to have this conversation, and I'm very aware that I stand on the shoulders of giants such as Sister Aisha um, uh, Aladawiya from New York City, um, 
and, and others, uh, you know, in, in the United States as well as all over the world, right? So I'm not the first person to, to, to have this conversation, but I think the medium that I used, which was Tumblr as well as Twitter and Facebook, allowed for the conversation to kind of go viral, right? Like go, you know, using the internet and social media to widen the conversation. And so one thing it did was kind of offer a sort of catharsis for women who sometimes would be gaslit in their own communities. Like, why, why are you upset about where you're praying? At least you're welcome. At least you're allowed to be here. And, you know, like you could just be praying in your own home, right? And it also gave, I think, um, momentum to people, men and women, leaders in the Muslim community who had been wanting to, to, you know, do something about this issue and had, in fact, had their studies and, and in fact, had been working um, to, to change mosque culture in the United States, I think it helped to to lead to, to, to more of that. And so in 2012, you know, some of the online conversation was pretty toxic. I often would get pushback from people saying, oh, this is not a problem. Like, we're, like women in the mosque is not an issue. Um, you know, 2012 was an election year, so there was anti-Muslim bigotry everywhere. Why am I feeding or stoking the fire of Islamophobia by, you know, of course, um, talking about gender discrimination in Muslim communities. Mm. Um, whereas today, you know, 2018, most, I think, uh, at least most of the people I engage with online and in real life around this issue um, admit that this is a problem. Not only admit that this is a problem, but they also say, well, we also have a solution. And that solution is the prophetic model the Prophet's mosque in Medina, peace be upon him, was one where women and children and everyone were welcome. And, you know, men and women prayed in the same hall and women were fully engaged as equal congregants um, in that mosque. And, you know, that has led to, I think, some real institutional changes, not only in mosques, but also in national uh, Muslim organizations around this issue. And um, people, you know, people still push back, you know, just earlier this week, you know, I um, saw that there was a conversation on a local Chicago Muslim Facebook group uh, for for women, you know, where people were having this argument around, um, you know, somebody had asked, oh, what, what are the what are the good mosques where women can pray? And other people push back, what do you mean? And you should feel lucky that you're even allowed, you know, to pray into some mosques. And I had to step in there and say, listen, guys, like, it's not a privilege, you know, to, to enter a mosque. It's our right as believers. And I, I you know, the, so the struggle continues because, the, you know, not everyone has kind of um, been educated around what the Prophet's mosque looked like. And not everyone, I think, um fully understands yet the importance of why especially little girls <laughs> mm-hmm. should feel that they are welcome in, in, in their, not just that they're welcome in the mosque, but that the mosque is their second home in many ways. Wow. Such an interesting conversation. Um, you know, and that this yeah. really, I, I was just um, looking at uh, something that a friend had commented on. I mean, this is not just affecting our religious institutions, um, and so, you know, when you are getting that pushback, it's like you're when you're speaking about these issues, it's really reflective of an overarching pr- 
problem. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at not just inside the mosque, but even outside when we're doing um, lectures or uh, different kind of conferences, the number of times, and I know we've talked about this in the different groups that we're in, um, that, you know, there literally will be a, a panel full of male speakers and men talking about certain mm-hmm. topics and no women when we know full well that we have very qualified um, women to talk on these topics, even when it's like, I mean, topics such as women in Islam, and <laughs> they'll be like all mm-hmm. these men yeah. speaking. And actually, it's interesting. Or marriage in Islam. Yeah. Like the panel is all men. <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, this is not just, um, I don't think that this is a problem circumscribed just to, uh, limited to the Muslim community. I definitely see this in mm-hmm. other faith communities and even just in general. Um, there was a, a friend of mine is a cardiac um, anesthesiologist, and she is like, really like nationally recognized and on several different boards and she posted a picture of there was like this whole panel of um, surgeons speaking at this national conference and every single one of them was male and the person that posted Mm -hmm. the picture said you know this is a uh, whatever a great event but we really hope that there'll be more um, women surgeons or female surgeons that will be able to um, offer kind of their expertise so this is really when you're addressing it it's it's kind of again addressing an overarching problem um, yeah. So, and, and actually, it in some ways dovetails with some of my interfaith work as well, because I've been able to connect with specifically Orthodox Jewish um, women who have very similar um, challenges to a lot of Muslim women in terms of access um, to their synagogues and access to the rabbis in their synagogues and access to education in general and just even the feeling of exclusion if you're praying literally behind a wall. What what does that mean? What does, how does that make a believer feel? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I've, mm-hmm. I've been on some really interesting panels in the last few years with Jewish women, with Mormon women, um, really kind of, you know, kind of diving into this question of those of us who are inspired by our faith do not want to leave our faith and won't leave our faith, but are also confronting, you know, structural sexism. Um, within the faith, what is you know? How can we work together to support each other at the very least um, in our work? Wow, um, you know. Before we wrap up, Hin, can you tell us a little bit about um, you had mentioned to me the series that you're working on um, with Chicago's mm-hmm. Muslim communities and NPR on building um, interrelation interracial relationships? And I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but you also were one of the founding members of, um, or you really helped with the. Um, development of um, Muslim ARC Anti-Racism Committee. We had Namira on here a few months ago. Um, mm-hmm. But that kind of goes into, you know, this work that you're going to be doing with the, in Chicago on building these relationships. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, actually. it's So um, it's a really interesting collaboration that we're doing. There's um, the WBEZ, which is the, the local NPR affiliate here in Chicago, has a series called Curious City, which I think is a, is a national series as well. People call in and they ask questions about the city of Chicago, and then they have, you know, people kind of investigating that question. So late last year, an ESL teacher asked Curious City, you know, do um, Arab Muslims and Black Muslims in Chicago pray in the same mosques? <laughs> and hmm. So that was kind of a question that was sort of out of left field, but you know, um, they reached out to me, the folks at Curious City reached out to me, and um, and they, I mean, obviously reached out to a lot of other people as well. But what culminated, you know, typically they just do like a five to seven minute segment on on um, the question. But what culminated um, the answers 
that they received from this very seemingly uh, simple question culminated in like a 20-minute radio uh, conversation that we had at the WBEZ headquarters um, because it's such uh, you know it, it's such an important and deep question. And Chicago, like you know Detroit, <laughs> like other cities in in the country, um, the Muslim community is racially divided geographically. Um, particularly geographically, but also racially and ethnically. And people do not necessarily pray in the same mosques. And so one of the one of the outcomes of that radio conversation that we had last um, late last year was an agreement by you know a lot of the panelists, and uh, you know I was included as being both black and Arab. <laughs> um, uh, as well as WBEZ, as well as another, uh, local, um, you know, institution, the American Islamic Colleges, that they wanted to, you know, continue to have these conversations within the Muslim community with the aim of um, not just engaging the question, but hopefully building relationships across racial and what that looks like in, in Chicago is geographic lines. Um, and so what we're doing now, we're launching the series um, we, we had like a, a town hall meeting at the American Islamic College a few months ago where we, you know, invited the community to, to share their perspectives on this question and what it could look like um, to build, um, not necessarily a racial utopia, but at least to, to build more meaningful and healthy interracial relationships among Chicago's Muslim communities. And so we're launching this series uh, starting this um, July, at the end of July, where we really dive into this question, like what could it look like to have healthy interracial relationships um, among Chicago's Muslims? And we're, you know, working with reaching out to not only mosques and uh, Muslim student associations at the local universities, but also to individuals and nonprofit organizations and people who, um, you know, do nonprofit work, community work, people who are uh, artists and innovators and cultural curators to really, you know, kind of bring the, the vibrancy of Chicago, um, Chicago's diverse, very diverse communities, and think about what that could look like if we can start to build um, some healthy relationships as well. So that, I'm so excited about that. We're going to have workshops on um, what privilege <laughs> is, you know, and what does privilege look like if you're an immigrant from Lebanon? Right. Or an immigrant mm-hmm. from Pakistan living in a white suburb vis a vis if you are an immigrant from Somalia or, you know, uh, or, you know, living in uh, another part of the city. Right. So we're going to have those conversations. We're going to have conversations around um, uh, Islamic texts around race and what that looks like for, for Muslims. Um, and with the real with the aim to create like concrete and tangible relationships. Uh, in the city um, and, and and the suburbs, and hopefully by the end of the year or so, we're able to say, okay, we moved the dial, the the needle on the dial a little bit on this question. Wow, that sounds r- so fascinating! Very cool. Maybe some of the um, people from Starbucks need to uh, attend uh, some of those sessions. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know when their day is that they're doing that, but uh, but I mean, those are just uh, sounds like amazing, rel- such relevant and amazing topics. Um, that's really exciting. I hope we can do something like that here in the Detroit area. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm excited. 
Yeah, that's that's very exciting. Uh, I'm so sorry. It looks like we've run out of time, and I'm um, so sorry to kind of cut this conversation short. But would love to have you back again, maybe after you've um, uh, concluded with the in some of the programming, mm-hmm. some of the, the discussions that you were talking about. Um, you know, with the community, with some community in Chicago and NPR, and talk about a little bit about the impact of that. But we'd love to have you on again. Um, but thank you so much, Hind, for your time and really for sharing your insight and wisdom, and really the amazing work you're doing to build inclusivity within and between communities and these conversations, these crucial conversations that you're having and initiating. Um, I'm just really always been awed by your work. Can you tell us what's? Do you have a blog, or is it? Is your work primarily through the side entrance? Or do you also have a separate blog where you um, share your insights? Can you sh- um, tell us what those websites are? Yeah. Okay. So um, people can find me on Twitter. It's probably um, where I'm most prolific. It's just at Hindmeki. But I also do have a blog. You can read um, what I wrote, uh, what I write about, you know, certain issues on Pathios.com, which is a national religion website. And you just... Uh, go to Patios and look for introspective, and I'll uh, let you know how to write that. Um, so I love puns. And so you can find me on that, Twitter, uh, on on, um, on Patios, and as well, uh, the Tumblr is just side entrance. So you go to uh, tumblr.com slash side entrance. That's two E's because I spelled it correctly. And um, that's, that's where folks can find me. Awesome. Great. And we'll put this information um, uh, in our little blurb uh, describing this so that people can find that easily and follow you and follow the amazing work that you're doing and hopefully be inspired um, to do the similar same work in um, their own communities. Um, thank you so much. Hind. It was an honor and pleasure to have you on. And uh, again, I would love to have you on again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was an honor and pleasure for me to be with you today, Saba. Aw, thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in um, to another episode of Unsung Heroes. Really excited to be here. I know we took a little, we've been taking a little bit of a break here and there, but we've got some really great guests that we have lined up for the next few weeks before we break for the summer. So um, thanks everybody for tuning in. And please, again, follow us on our Facebook page, subscribe to um, our uh, all of our shows on iTunes. Um, and uh, and send us a message. And um, we also have an email address. Um, what is it? It's unsung heroes stories, and that's two S's. Unsung heroes stories at gmail.com. You can also send in any of your feedback or questions or um, you know, any ideas for future guests. Thanks everybody. Have a wonderful day.